All right. Hey, pod people. I'm Bart Allman. This is the Thinking and Drinking Shorty Show. These shows are going to be 10 or 20 minutes shorties about little things that are on my mind. I hope you like them. And if there's something you want me to delve into, let me know on Facebook or on my Instagram site, which is Thinking and Drinking Pod. And uh, here we go. Thanks again. Hey, special thanks to Paul Reed Smith. They make some of the best guitars in the world, and I'm so proud to have them as a sponsor. Check them out at prsguitars.com. All right. Hello, Thinking and Drinkings. This is uh, another show in our series of Music Industry 101. And uh, we're going to talk about publishing. Music publishing. Music publishing, right. Not necessarily a book, although those are in the same contracts a lot of times. Mine were. Really? Uh-huh. Okay. If I, yeah, if I wrote a book, it belonged to Disney or whoever a lot of times. I don't think we had those in our contracts. Really? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think we're in any jeopardy of... Uh, well, you never Somebody know. Somebody writing a book, anyway. Um, maybe a coloring book. <laughs> maybe a coloring book. So, do you want to talk? Yes, you were in publishing, and I want to ask how you got into it. But how long were you in it? So, I worked for publishers for fifteen years. Okay. Um, I always here in Nashville. Always in Nashville. I um, went to school. I went. I had my after high school. I went to a junior college in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And got my associate's degree and then went to Mississippi College and was um, uh, majoring in public relations because I thought at the time I wanted to work in public relations. You'd be good at that. In the music business. And so I heard about MTSU having a recording industry um, degree. So I came to MTSU. And again, at the time, my emphasis was in public relations. So I did a lot of music industry, like all the core classes. Um, my degree is in music industry, and then I have minors in public relations and marketing. Do I use either of those things? No. Well, kind of for your for your photography, you do. Yeah, I guess. But um, so I interned at um, Mercury Records back in like the Shania Twain heyday, and Oh Brother Where Art There record, which was a lot of fun. I bet. Yeah, and then um, I also interned at Dreamcatcher Management. So I was dealing with like Kenny Rogers oh, yeah. when he had that hit on that label. And there were some smaller acts that I honestly can't remember their names. Um, and then also interned sort of, it was a class, but an internship at Virgin. Mm-hmm. Um, and Clay Davidson would have been the big artist at oh, that yeah. time. Um, which is how I met like Jason Krupek and Jim Beavers because they were both working there at the time. Mm-hmm. Um but once I graduated college, again, I thought I was going to be in public relations. And what was Clay Davidson's son's name? I don't know. Oh, Harley. Harley, Harley Davidson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with publishing. Anyway. It's just funny. Back to, back to me. Yes, back to you. Um, so after I got out of college, I went about a month before I got, like I put out my resumes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had some great contacts through the internships that I did. Um, and the first job offer I got was in music publishing, which was ironic because that was a class that I liked the least in college. Really? Probably because I had a really bad professor. Oh. Um, it wasn't quite as bad as accounting, but, um, (laughs) he just never really explained it in a way that I got it. Yeah. Uh, but I knew it was working with songwriters and it was, it was a first step. So I, I took it as my first, you know, foot in the door. Yeah. Um, and that was with Hamstein. Um, music publishing at the time we had publishing and then like a little, 
I don't want to say management or label, but it was kind of an artist development yeah. act um, or part of the company. Um, and Hamstein, we were kind of coming off the end of like the big like nineties run of like huge hits, like Third Rock from the Sun. Well, also Bill Ham. Bill Ham manages Easy Top yeah. and Clint Black and. Yeah. Big big name in the music yeah. business. And I mean they they were an independent publishing company and they got pretty close to becoming publisher of the year, which is yeah. I mean if there was an independent publisher of the year, they would have won it several yeah. years in a row. Yeah. Um but I got to know a lot of great songwriters there and learn about publishing. Um, I was there for about a year before they sold to Mosaic Media Group. Who were some of the writers? Um, at that time, we had Tony Martin, mm-hmm. um, Reese Wilson, Bobby Pinson, Lee Miller. And Bobby Pinson and Lee Miller were brand new baby writers at the yeah. time. Did you have Jack and Britton there? Had Jack and Britton, Amy Daly. Right. Um, oh, I forgot Amy was there. Yeah, Amy was there. And I'm trying to think of who else. But, we had a lot of people. And, you know, like I said, it was we were kind of... When I came on, they were kind of winding down like a lot of the big contracts from like Reese Wilson, right? Um, but you, but Jack and Britton would have been in that artist development. They would kinda. have been, in, and so would Amy. And Amy, yeah. I think Amy did was publishing and okay. Well, we had both of them for publishing, but anyway, um, but yeah, seeing them trying to develop, you know, them yeah. as artists was a lot of fun. And Amy got a record deal with Curb, yeah, um, with Lee Miller producing her, yeah. Um, and then Jack and Britton got a couple of record deals uh, with smaller labels. Yeah. But they ended up splitting and doing their own thing. And Jack now plays for Jason Aldean. Has for like seven years? Yeah. Something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so at Hamstein, it sold to Mosaic Media Group, which was a company out of L.A. that did movies um, and uh, like management for actors. So like I know their biggest actor was Will Ferrell. Right. Um, but just a quick second, at Hamstein, you had Jeff Carlton. Yes. He was running the show. Lisa Ramsey. Lisa Ramsey. Tim Hunsey. Tim Hunsey. Chip Hardy. Chip. So could you explain kind of what their duties were individually versus like what your duties yeah. were? Yeah. So, I mean, my duties at that time were just basically answering the phones. Okay. Um, and they did evolve into other things on down the road. But um, at that time, I was just answering the phones and just kind of being the hub of communication for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Carlton was the, I can't remember his title. I would assume president or vice president. Yeah. Um, and Best- I only say vice president because I think somebody in Texas, Texas was probably the yeah. president. Um, that would be in Richard Perna, maybe either Perna or, uh, Bill Ham. Bill. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he was probably owner of Perna president. Right. Anyway. So, uh, Jeff ran the whole show. So he was just kind of the general manager. Right. Of, the company in Nashville. Um, Tim and Lisa and Chip were the three song pluggers. Mm -hmm. So their jobs were to listen to songs that the writers on staff would write, decide whether or not they should be demoed. If they were to be demoed, um, they would then take those songs to all the different labels in town, play them for specific artists, you know, so Amy Daly may have written a song for Reba McIntyre. Mm-hmm. And so she would take it to Reba, or Lisa would take it to Reba McIntyre. And if they passed, Or her A&R person. Or her A&R somewhere. person. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't a good fit for Reba, then she would take it to the next artist, Trish Yearwood or Martina McBride or whoever yeah. it was Terry on Clark down the line. Or somebody. Um, yeah. So you just kind of work these songs, so to speak, hopefully 
getting them where, you know, the songwriter kind of envisioned it to be with. Because a lot of times you write yeah. a song with somebody in mind, but then a lot of times you don't. And they're um, probably all looking for writers, too. Right. New writers. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of artists kind of have their little group of people that they love those songs. Like Kenny Chesney loves Craig Wiseman and Luke right. Laird. And, you know, that those are kind of his go-to people. The camp? The camp. Um, was it was it that way as much back then? I mean, I think it really is now. But I think it was a lot less that way yeah. back then. I think there was just because there were more options for artists. There were more options for labels. There were more options for writers, and people wrote with different people. Because you always hear often. those stories. Sorry to interrupt you, but you always hear those stories of like George Strait saying, "You know, between me and Tony Brown, we listened to five thousand songs for this record." It's yeah. like really. I bet you listened to 55 songs for Yeah, I kind of find that hard to believe because they kind of had their go-to people. I would with, think. With, like, Tony Martin and yeah. Martin Nessler being two of them, and they would write together a lot. And uh, Dean Dillon. Dean Dillon. He's had, what, 35 George oh Strait number ones or something insane. Crazy. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so that's what kind of Tim and Lisa did, and they, w- they would try to get the songs put on hold. Which is? It is a term <laughs> that we use in the in publishing that basically says, I'm holding this song for now for you to let you have this song first, this art. Say, like, I pitched a song to Kenny Chesney. Right. Kenny Chesney loves it. He puts it on hold. Well, I'm not going to be pitching it to right. Luke Bryan or Jason Aldean while it's on hold for Kenny because if they go and cut it underneath Kenny – Kenny's mad at me. Yes. And I don't want Kenny mad at me. No. Because Kenny could be my bread and butter. He'll be making another record. Yes. So if so do you Kenny, always crack open the Dom like on Nashville? Uh, no, that's ridiculous. If you saw Nashville <laughs> and you saw that episode where one of their little acts put got a song put on hold, nobody is cracking champagne over a cut, much less a no, hold. You're just getting, that's really nice. Now go write another song. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so you put it on hold, and so Kenny's recording, you hope the song gets cut. If the song doesn't get cut, he then takes it off hold, and then you pitch it to ever. But they'll put on 50 songs on right. hold for an album. So don't feel special if your song gets put on. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, cool, it's great, absolutely. And you want songs to get put on That's hold first, because it's, it's the first, first step. foot in the door. But it doesn't mean you can go buy your Ferrari. Right. Just yet. I wouldn't recommend buying a Ferrari if it got put on a multi-platinum record. No. Um, so next step would be getting the song cut. So that means that basically the artist has gone in and recorded the song. Yeah. Awesome. Still don't crack the, the dom just nope. quite yet, or the vouve in my case. Um, that's very exciting, it, but like a lot can happen between a song being cut and the song being, I mean, the album being out in the stores. Yeah. Um, when the album is out in the stores and you can see that title in the cellophane wrap at Target, that's when you go pop the champagne. But you also know that you're, what, nine months away from getting a check. Nine months away from getting a check. And just because your song's on a record does not mean you can go, you know, pay off your house. Do you want to explain that also, how, like, writing and publishing money is generally three quarters of a year behind just because of there's so much accounting to be... Done. I mean, I know that's a lot of. I mean, you kind of just explained it. It just yeah, that's yeah. just the flow of money. It just takes a while yeah. to get from being sold in the stores to a songwriter's checking account. It takes about three to four months. 
depending on the record. Or um, more. Yeah, and it just it's because it has to go, like you said, like through all the accounting channels. Yeah. Um, and you know, yes. So remember, <coughs> excuse me, when Hockey Talk got cut, we were going to California for my uncle's wedding, and my dad was saying, you know, it was already at like thirty-two on the chart, so it already was was moving. <coughs> excuse me, and he goes, uh, you know, don't tell me if you don't want to, but. How much money have you made on that so far? And I have a check on the wind wall over there. And I said, it's funny you should ask. I just got my first BMI check. And uh, I said it was $2.43. Mm-hmm. He goes, what? Yeah. How long ago did you write that? When was it recorded? Blah, blah, blah. And he said something so smart. He said, you could really go broke waiting for your own money, couldn't oh, you? Oh, for said, sure. Absolutely. That's why, I mean, I always thought that, Bankers should have meetings with songwriters saying, great, you sold a million records. You may never sell 10 more records. Don't take that first big check and buy a house that you may end up losing two years from now. Yeah. But that's neither here nor there. It's fun to blow money once in a while. It is, but (laughs) I do think, you know, you kind of touched on something that you and I have talked about a lot, which is responsibility with money. Yeah. And unfortunately, we have both seen a lot of, young songwriters oh and artists spend money and not realizing like I need to take money out first of all for taxes. Cause they're going to come after that. Yeah. You aren't taxed on your money from BMI and ASCAP or in uh, CSAC. You have to ha- be yeah. responsible enough as a writer or artist to take that money out yourself. Now you should have a business manager or, or accountant, accountant. Yeah. to be doing that on your behalf. I do highly, highly recommend that. I don't Absolutely. care if you're making $10 or $100 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. $100 million. It really is. <laughs> I don't know anybody Actually, making you know $100 million. There's, there's, if I, you're making I would $10 much, or $10 million. Okay. Or so, 10000 I mean, right. you need have a, an accountant. accountant and you need a good lawyer. And be smart about money. Yes, have yes. a good lawyer. It's definitely number one, too. That 15-year-old... Mazda pickup is still getting you to working back, so right. keep driving it. Right. I, I've known guys who have had several cuts and several huge hits that were driving sh- not great cars. Yep. <laughs> I didn't cuss. <laughs> nope. I almost did. Really not great cars because they were smart about their money. Yeah. They didn't think that, oh, I'm, I have a song on the radio. Let me go buy the brand new Maserati SUV to but look I've like got, a baller. But I've no. got two kids that are wanting to go to college. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we kind of went down a rabbit hole yeah. on that. But okay, so the song got cut. The song is on the album. Yay for you. Okay. Now you just sit there and pray and hope and wait. You're and in my case, call radio stations because I case, still because I still knew them. Yes, <laughs> you are a an anomaly. <clears throat> yes, but um, hope and pray and ask your publisher, your song pluggers, like, hey, is there any chance? This song can be the next single. Yeah. So that's also what pluggers are doing. They are, you know, working with A and R to talk to them to talk to their marketing about please let the song be a single. Well, and, and you like, kind of know going in, at least back then, if kinda. it's going to be a single or not, because yeah. but like, they were definitely that uh, Florida Georgia Line mm-hmm. cut that I had. They went five singles deep, and I was told every time that that's the next single. Yeah, and it never was a single at all. Right. And so that happens too. That definitely does happen. But like, I mean, there were definite 
album cuts that people yeah. would record back in the day. And back in the day, if you did get an album cut, that was great. I mean, if you could be on a multi-platinum album that sold 10 million records, that's huge. That's a lot of money in the bank. Or a or platinum was. album. But the thing is, it's sad, is that albums don't send to sell 10 million records anymore. Or a million. Or a million. Can you, um, just speaking of money, there's recoupable, there's draw. What, uh, like, what's a draw? How would you explain a draw? So a draw is basically a salary for a writer. Um, with, but unlike a salary for an employee, that money is recoupable. It's recoupable. So yeah. basically it's kind of like a loan with no interest. Right. So if your draw is $20,000 a year, you'll get $20,000. You'll get paid every month. Split up twenty thousand dollars, you know, over twelve mm-hmm. months. Um, when you get your publishing statement at the end of at every quarter, your recoupable, your draw is on there as a yeah. recoupable item. So you have your draw, and you have any expenses that are you know demos, demos, um, mainly demos is yeah. really it. I mean. I'm trying to think of what else other expense there would be. I got asked when I was a young writer, hey, do you want to fly to Key West to play this BMI songwriter thing? And I said, I sure do. And on my next statement, all of that was recoupable. I was like, I think you told me that. That's mm-hmm, wrong. That is wrong. I mean, I guess it just really depends, again, on your contract and what's yeah. in your contract. Yep. To be recoupable, so that probably was in your contract. Yeah. So next year when they asked me if I wanted to, my answer was no, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Learned your lesson. <laughs> yes, I did. But, so basically all that stuff is, you'll as a songwriter, you would get sent a statement quarterly. I mean, Bart still gets statements every quarter yeah. um, from all the publishing companies he's ever They're smaller for. and smaller and smaller. <laughs> <laughs> well, the amount doesn't get yeah. smaller. Because unfortunately, unless you do have a huge hit to offset those costs, oh man, you you don't make money. Like so, the only reason he gets a I don't know how to explain this without really getting technical, but so when you when you signed with Windswept, mm-hmm. um, you had already had the song "You Can't Take the Honky Tonk Out of the Girl" cut, yeah, and it was going to be the single, yeah, and they wanted a piece of that, yeah. And so they got a very tiny piece of that, but you still remained co-pub on that song. Right. You had co-pub. So that basically means that the publishing was owned half. I was it half? Yeah. Okay. It was half between Windswept and Bart's company that he set up. No, with they got less than that. Sorry. Okay. Well, just for. Whatever. Yeah. You know, educational purposes, let's just do 50-50 split. Yeah. Because so, co-pub, usually you are 50-50 is pretty right. typical. Um. So whenever the royalties started coming in for that from record sales, record sales only, mm-hmm. those sales were split 50-50 between Windswept and Emerson Biggins Music. Yep. Um, so that portion was basically paid for <laughs> because every, you know, he got this huge cut. Yeah. And it was a single and it was on an album that sold quite well. And so he had um, all that paid for. So all the stuff that was recoupable was basically taken out from the 50% that was going to Windswept. Yeah. And you didn't have a um, – you met your deductible basically. Is, right. 
how to say that without... I know, it's weird. It is weird because it is very technical terms, but you basically, you went into the black there, and so you start making money at that point. Yeah. Most that's a rarity because the other publishing companies are not like that because right. you've not had other hits with like Cherry Lane. It was just all the money from your draw and your demos. From which day one, I was just digging, digging a hole. Yep, and, and that's how every that's contract every, starts. Every every publishing contract essentially. Um, now, going back to the sales, so the record label—I mean, record label publishing company—gets. Record sales money. They do not get airplay money. The songwriter gets airplay money. Which is really why you want to have a hit. Yes. Now, that's probably changed because I do think nowadays publishers are signing deals where they get a portion of that airplay money. That was not the case back in the day. Yeah. Because there are no album sales. Yeah. So they have to be able to make money somehow. For signing and giving these writers a draw to right. live off of and paying for their demo expenses. I'm sure demo expenses have come down because people are not going in the studio and hiring five and six musicians. Because we all have anymore. home studios. Right. There's home studios. Yeah. So um, something that's very, very important are um, performance rights organizations, PROs. Mm-hmm. Every writer must be signed to one of them. ASCAP. ASCAP, BMI, BMI and CSAC. CSAC. I think there might be something else nowadays, too, like a smaller one. But those are the three big ones, at least here in Nashville, um, with BMI and ASCAP being the two of the biggest. Right. You've been a BMI writer. Yep. That's all I've ever been. Most people are one or the other based on relationships, based on friendships. You had a friendship with uh, Mark Mark Mason. Mason. Who worked at RCA with me. So you went with BMI. And he was the first person to say, over the course of your career, ASCAP's going to pay better on one song than BMI, but BMI will pay better on another song. Right. He goes, it's going to add up. It's going to even up. So go where you have a friend. Right. And they do basically, at the end of the day, I mean, it's not like the checks are that hugely different. Right. You know, and if they are, then you have the option at the end of your yearly contract with that performance right or rights organization to leave and go to the somewhere else. And you can audit them. And you can audit them. But and, that's you know, pretty expensive, and it's coming out of your pocket. It is expensive, but if you're somebody yeah, like Craig Wiseman, right. who has had a bunch of hits, it can be worth it sometimes. Yeah. Um, now, to join a performance rights organization, it costs nothing. Well, it may cost like a small admin yeah. fee, but like you're not getting paid from them unless you have music playing on the air. Right. Um, and they're not paying you anything. So... Performance right organizations are completely different from publishing. Yeah. But you can't be a songwriter without them because they're out there collecting money on your behalf. So they're collecting money from radio stations. They're collecting money from... um, Streaming. Streaming from music, I mean, movies and TV. And And then also... all over the world, too. Live. Yeah. So every time when I was working at Big Loud Shirt... um, Every time Florida Georgia Line would play a concert somewhere, I would have to submit their playlist and the date to ASCAP BMI. Yeah. I think think it was just BMI because I think both the guys were just BMI. Or our writers were only BMI writers. So I would just submit their playlist and then 
they are collecting from that venue, BMI is, a licensing fee um, so that that goes into like a basically a big pot of a licensing fee. Yeah. And that gets split out between what songs are being played there. So it's important if you are a young act and you are out playing live somewhere and you are writing your own songs, you need to have those songs registered with BMI. Yeah. And then you can submit your live playlist to BMI and you, you will get some money. It's going to be pennies, but it's something. Um, I couldn't tell you if I ever made a, a whole dollar off of Brooks and Dunn or FGL or anybody else. I'm sure you did. You, I hope so. You would have to really study your, <laughs> your statement. But like if you walk into a restaurant, a lot of times you'll see like yeah. in the corner of the door, yeah. like ASCAP or BMI. There'll be so, a sticker on that yep. door. Yep. So they are, re- they are collecting fees on your behalf. So that's why you need, is that a copyright then? No. What's a copyright? So copyright is um, basically something that you would register with the U.S. government, Library of Congress, um, which if you're ever in D.C., go visit the Library of yeah. Congress. You can't go see your copyrights right? because they're in a whole other room. But the Library of Congress is literally the most beautiful building it's in D.C. unbelievable. It, it's gorgeous. Anyway, um, but so what I would do, part of my job at Big Loud Shirt as years progressed was to start registering our copyrights yeah um you do that as soon as the song is written no we do it as soon as the song is cut okay or if it's being played played live somewhere like with fgl florida georgia line we would um when they like start playing a new song that maybe hasn't been recorded yet we would still go ahead and register those songs to make sure they're um, Protected. protected yeah because in copyright cases the date of copyright registration does matter Oh, okay. Um, we never had issues, but it's just something that we were advised to do by our lawyers. Yeah. Um, so I would register online, just take it online and register the songs. Um, and I can't, it's been so long since I've done it. I think we did it in like song groupings. So, because I think, I think it was pretty expensive if you just registered one song, but you mm-hmm. could also do one song or like 10 songs. I okay. There was something like that, that I would have to like go back and refresh right. my memory on it. But we would try to do groups of songs, and like you'd have to send the CDs in of a song on a CD, burnt to a CD. I'm sure now it's different. You can probably send an MP3 in. Right. Actually, I think we maybe were transitioning to MP3s. Yeah. Um, and then that way they have the music, um, and the songs are protected. But you also have to register those songs, not just with the Library of Congress. That takes care of the copyright, but also with... ASCAP and BMI, whoever your writer on the song was. Yeah. Do you um, remember when people used to self, what was it called? They would mail it to themselves and the postmark yeah. was considered legal at that time? I mean, that that's because there was a case. Um, yeah. I don't remember which case it was. That was Can't in, do it anymore. In that publishing class that I didn't do well in. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you could do that where you, you mailed the song to yourself and that would say like, oh, this postmark says that... I received it on this date, so it's at least this is a way to prove right. that this song was written on this date or before. Yeah, um, and that does that really does matter when you are a big writer. Yeah. Like if I just decided to start writing and I don't have any success ever, like I'm pretty sure nobody's gonna be ripping my songs off. Right. I think people who do that kind of stuff are people who are out there looking to sue someone. Well, but like you said, you used to work with Craig Wiseman who got sued over this kind of stuff a handful of times. Yeah. And it's like, 
uh, fortunately, you guys had your T's crossed and your I's dotted, and the, it was stupid. The amount of unnecessary lawsuits that he had to deal with was unbelievable. It was yeah. so stupid. And they're baseless. I mean, like, I can't even talk about it, but it's baseless. Yeah. And, like, yeah. It's just somebody thinking it's easy pickings. And, and Yeah. And the sad thing is, is if you really do want to be a songwriter, a successful songwriter in Nashville, I think even now, if you're going to go and sue one of the biggest songwriters yeah. saying that they stole your song and you have zero anything to base that on, you have literally just burnt that bridge. That yeah. person will never write with you. And, and probably, a bunch of his friends will never write absolutely. with you. Absolutely. I mean, I remember one lawsuit that Craig had and I immediately just knew I'll never write with that cat that's suing no. Craig because Craig's a good friend of mine. Yeah. That guy was a good friend of mine, but it's like everybody in the room knew there was no case. Yeah. It's just stupid. Do you want to explain uh song splits? So song splits in Nashville, at least when I was working in publishing, which was five years ago. Ages ago. Five years ago. <laughs> I can't believe it. I've been gone for five years. I was at Big Loud Shirt for ten years, by the way. Um, I didn't finish even my, like, Oh yeah. My story. Sorry. So yeah. Okay. Real quick. I was at Hamstein for about two, three years. Yeah. Um, which turned into mosaic media group. Um, got fired, lost my first job because I had to downsize, you know, yeah. it was traumatic at the time. Um, I remember that. I know we were baby dating at that time, yeah. just barely dating. Um, it was, yeah, barely, it was hard. Barely dating sounds better than baby dating. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, um, lost that job. Got a job at Universal Publishing, which was fun and great. And I was so thankful to have worked for a large publishing company and a corporate company. Yeah. Just to kind of see the difference from an independent, from a super independent company that they are to Big Loud Shirt, which at the time was Big Loud Shirt and Diver Dan. Yeah. So I was working for Craig and... Dan Craig Huff. Wiseman and Dan Huff for their publishing companies. And Dan Huff's publishing company was a co-venture with Sony Music Group. Another giant. Another giant label. Um, so like you went from I mean, having publishing company. Publishing, yeah. You went from having five or six or eight writers at Hamstein to having how many writers at Universal? Oh, probably like twenty. And you, that didn't even include be, like I mean, it did include those are probably 20 people that we would see on a day-to-day Daily basis, basis or yeah. weekly basis. Yeah. Um, not including like Shania Twain and like artists that would right. never come in. Um, you know, Emily Harris was one of our writers. I think I met her. I don't even think I met her. I think I saw her at a Christmas party. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I went to um, Big Loud shirt slash Diver Dan. So I was working with Kimberly and Daryl and it was mm-hmm. very small. It was just the three of us. And Throughout the years, you know, within a couple of years, we were moving to a bigger building, hiring more people. Craig started Big Loud Bucks, his admin company, which he mm-hmm. later sold to um, Round Hill Publishing. Um, and yeah, it just it had a lot of changes and a lot of growth. Um, it's interesting. A lot of growth and a lot of pain that happened throughout the years, and I loved it. And I love everybody there still. We left on good terms, and so yeah, I could go do my. Publishing, I mean, my publishing. Photography. Photography, start my own business. <laughs> Do publishing, shoot me. Um, but anyway, all that to be said, um, that was kind of my background. So what was your question? Well, I mean, you learned a lot about song quotas, admin, oh. catalog management, yeah. uh, song splits, track guys. I mean, you had, at least if you weren't 
knee deep in it. It was around you all the time. Right. So yeah. Um, I think my question was about song splits. Song splits. So yeah. So my job at Big Loud literally grew as the company grew. Mm-hmm. You know, I started off answering phones and doing basic catalog management. Yeah. Which meant putting songs in what we called our system. So it was iTunes, and we had a database that somebody had created for us that right. kept all the song information. Um, which basically that song information we used to um, send to BMI and ASCAP and to our admin company so that they could collect money on our behalf. Mm-hmm. So that's what admin company does. Right. Um, so song splits in Nashville, they seem to be pretty easy because Nashville is a fun little unique bubble. Yeah. Or has been where if you're in a room with somebody, it's a 50-50 split or however many people are yeah. in the room. If there's four people in the room, everybody's getting 25%. You know, I, I've heard stories of some songwriters trying to, you know, kind of nickel and dime the, uh, add up the percentage, lyrics yeah. and make their percentage based on how many, how much that they how contributed. Words they wrote. But those people are kind of rare and don't really yeah. write with a lot of people that I dealt with. Literally, if, if we had a weird song split, there was a reason. It was usually because they wrote with an artist mm-hmm. or they wrote with, um, somebody from LA. I remember Matt Dragstrom wrote with um, oh, some producer guy, pop producer guy, and the splits were weird. And we basically had to get that information from his manager, not Matt. Right. So it was like some weird, like 14.35% or something weird. It was so weird. And nobody had even splits. It wasn't like everybody had that percentage. Right. It was like he had that much, but somebody else had 35%. So yeah. That is, I think, more of a pop world that's or also outside of Nashville. You typically try to get written down before you start Correct. writing. Correct. Now, a song can change. The life of a song can change. Like Bumpin', um, mm-hmm. Bumpin' the Night that Florida Georgia Line recorded, you and Chris Tompkins initially wrote that song together. Right. And y'all brought in Rodney Clawson, who was just like on fire at the time, to kind of come in and make some tweaks and get it to where he knew that FGL would want to go and cut it. Yeah. And so y'all gave him a third. So yeah. basically you you took your 50%. You and Chris decided we're just going to bring Rodney on. We're going to split it evenly between the three of us. Sometimes that's super easy and that happens. And then sometimes, you know, maybe that person only gets 10%. Yeah. Or whatever it is. I mean – I can't remember the exact splits for Cruise, mm-hmm. um, but I do know that there was a very similar story with that song yeah. where um, Tyler well, wrote that. Writers, right? Yeah, I think there were six writers. Tyler had written that with Chase Rice and Jesse Rice. Yeah. And when they went in to record it, they made a lot of changes in the studio where Brian Kelly and then Joey Moy got a percentage. Now, I know that Brian and Joey's percentages were less than the other the original three writers. Yeah. And that's what they all agreed upon. Right. It it only gets weird when like people try to make changes that aren't agreed upon. And I think in Nashville that's a very easy thing to to do that everybody agrees. Well, like, I mean, I think like me and Chris in that song, everybody kind of knows you'd rather have a third of something than half of nothing. Exactly. And like I remember uh Honky Tonk when they were in the studio Ronnie Dunn changed a word, and me and Bob DePiro went, eh, what's he get, 5% of that or something? And Ronnie said, no, I changed one word, dude. That's I don't want any money for that. And yeah. he was real cool about it, but we obviously would have each given up 5 or 10% oh, to, sure. just to make sure to it was the on cut. the record. Yeah, but 
All right. Well, that's interesting. Um, what's right of first refusal? So basically what that means as a publisher, that's like one of the very few rights you have as far as people recording your music. Um, and I don't know why the history behind it, but yeah. basically if I wrote a song and I want um, Carrie Underwood to record it and say somebody in the middle of Wyoming hears a song and they think they want to record it. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody's ever recorded this song before. right? So I can deny that girl from recording that song out in the middle of Wyoming because yeah. I want Carrie Underwood or... Whoever is on the list, Maren Morris, you know, go down the list of artists. And once the song has been recorded, then if Carrie Underwood does record that song or whoever that we approve, that girl in Wyoming can then go record that song. Um, And it's nothing against the girl in Wyoming. It's just that Carrie Underwood's a massive star. Carrie Underwood's probably going to make me more money than the girl in Wyoming. But the girl in Wyoming does have to get a license to be able to record and release that song. Yeah. So one of the things that our admin company, because we were in the same building and we shared a lot of the same interns and sometimes we just didn't have a whole lot for our interns to do. So we would kind of give them admin related tasks. Mm. One of the things that we had them do, um, which just seems like an impossible task, but to go on YouTube and look for song, our, our copyrights that were not licensed. Publishers do that, people. Okay. So don't go and use – that's one reason – one of the reasons you don't hear music on this podcast is because we would have to get a license yeah. for all the music being played, and that can get very, very expensive. It might be two writers and four publishers because both writers have Copub and mm-hmm. all of that stuff, and yeah, that's yeah. a giant pain in the rear I mean, head. if we wanted to use You Can't Take the Honky Tonk Out of the Girl, we'd have to get a license from RCA – to be able to use the master recordings that mm-hmm. Brooks and Dunn did. Then we'd have to get a publishing license from um, BMG, because that's who now owns the Windswept copyrights. Oh, yeah. Then we would have to get a um, license from Sony Music, who owns Bob DePiro's Bob portion. Yep. You know, that's the thing that I don't think people understand is like legally, that is what you have to do. And yeah. that's why people will um, get shut down on YouTube because they don't have the proper licensing. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's hard to police that because it is so vast. Um, oh man! Yeah. But there are people who are dedicated to do that. Yeah, you know, and that's why people's um, you know little covers of a song, as sweet and innocent as they are, will get yanked if they don't get a license properly. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't know what all the verbiage is nowadays. I'm sure there's a way to do it in an easier manner. That's how it was done back yeah. then. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, license, you have to have a license for everything. So anytime that Brooks and Dunn would go and perform, um, honky tonk on TV or somebody wanted to use it in their TV show, they would have to get a license from the publishing companies as well as the record yeah. label. Yeah. I mean, one of the TV shows that we still laugh at that show up, shows up on your statement, like randomly, probably not as much anymore as that Las Vegas TV show. Cause it was used prominently in that. Yeah. Um, and so we got money from that show from like it being aired in Europe, you know. And I think that was the one with Dale Earnhardt in it too, so it made me happy. I don't know if it <laughs> was. Was it? Maybe not. I think he was already up in heaven. Okay. Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so licensing can get complicated because. But it's important. 
it's very important. And one thing that is good is that there is kind of the um, favored nations rule. Yeah. So if my publishing company and your publishing company are negotiating with, you know, the TV show that wants to use your song or the movie that wants to use your song. And it's, again, based on viewership, release, you know, all, how big the show. Like, if it's a small show so versus, like, you know, Dancing with the Stars or, yeah. like, I'm trying to think of a big Hollywood movie. All I can think of is Star Wars, and I'm pretty sure they're not going to use any country songs in Star Wars. Maybe in the bar on Tatooine. Maybe. Maybe. But, um, you know, obviously if that mo- movie is going to make a lot of money, they're going to ask for a yeah. higher fee. Right. Um, but, like, in the show Nashville, they use a lot a lot of country music. And yeah. I think they probably negotiated a lot with publishers, and they use a lot of the probably same publishers, and it's Favorite, a lot easier yeah. to use. Well, Favorite Nations is just we'll, we'll both yes. get the same money. Yes. So if I'm negotiating – sorry, got yeah. on a tangent. Um, if I'm negotiating with a, a – um, music supervisor, music supervisor department, um, and I'm saying we want this rate. I want X amount of dollars, and they're saying no, we're going to get Y amount of dollars, which is higher. Right. We go with the higher amount. Yeah. So that way, because we all want more. Right. That way, nobody's undercutting either. Yeah. Either one of them. You know, like we're all trying to work together, and and publishers will talk to each other about like, okay, how much are you talking to them about? Yeah. Because you want to do what's best for the the song and the writers because you're basically Absolutely. their advocate, yeah. you know, as far as like trying to help them get more money for their creation. Yeah. Well, you've worked with a lot of writers and I know you've had good experiences and bad experiences. Who's your favorite writer to work with? Sorry, I had to take a drink of water. Um, Craig. Ah. Oh, you. <laughs> work with you though i know no i knew you were gonna say craig no craig craig is amazing he's 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 such a good-hearted person um you know he can be a little crunchy sometimes but like at the end of the day he's he wants what's best for people yep and um you know he's so smart and so brilliant and you know i remember so many different times where he's brought songs and like would want me to listen to him before anybody else. Oh yeah. Um, I, I'm sure that's changed now, but like, and it didn't change over the years. Just, you know, obviously it was like just me and Kimberly. Um, and then it turned into a whole bunch of other people. But I mean, I remember <laughs> one of my favorite things about Craig is his work tapes. It's Kimberly Gleason, by Kimberly the way. Gleason, who is like one of my dearest friends. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about Craig is his work tapes because I don't know if you, it, people out there listening, if you don't know who Craig is, and we're trying to get him on the podcast, he's just super busy. But um, he may not enunciate the best sometimes. <laughs> and one of my jobs, which I would hand over to interns and then have to take back because they would not always do it perfectly or What's well. What's this word? Would be to transcribe work tapes because yeah. sometimes he'd have lyrics and sometimes he didn't. Um, and so... I got really good at listening to Craig and yeah. learning how to like hear things. Interpret. Interpret. Yes. I mean, I went from like, I would get down to the, my ear to the speaker, turn it super low to try to hear it, and then super high, and then kind of try to make out what he's saying. There's one time I remember where I asked him, what are you saying here? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Because it was such a mumble. <laughs> like, 
I mean, maybe feel better because I could. There was a time where he did a demo of a song that he and I wrote, and I couldn't understand what he said. Was it Rubbernecking? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I believe that. But I remember writing the the lyrics to um, Boys (laughs) Around Here or transcribing the lyrics. Oh, yeah. Because him. He it was one of the nights that he was working late, like after hours. Him and Dallas Davidson, who was renting a place from us, and Rhett Akins, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think that's who's on the song. Gosh, that's terrible. I don't remember. But they had written this song while I was, you know, after the company had shut down for the night, and you know, a lot of times I'd wake up, wake up. I'd come into work, and there would be a CD on the desk with like a little scribble, yeah, <laughs> which. First start to, like, figure out what the song was, title was. Because a lot of times it would just be, like, part of the lyric or not even, like, the actual song title. Right. And I can't remember if he sent me an email or what, but I knew that, like, they were pitching the song to Blake Shelton mm-hmm. pretty immediately if they hadn't done it already. And so I had to, like, immediately get in there and transcribe Boys Around Here, the work tape of Boys Around Here. Yeah. And that was, that, it was fun. That was a doozy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. So, thanks. That's it? That's all you got about publishing? What else do you want to say? I don't know. I don't know. I'd say that answers a lot of questions and probably asks a lot, asks a lot more questions. Asks is what I'm trying to say. Anyways. Okay. You don't want to know about, like, songwriter schedules and stuff I did. Oh, okay. Working with, you know, dealing with songwriters is basically... The best description that Craig ever gave me for my job was, I am the, um, who's the person in the airport that directs? Traffic controller? Traffic controller for a bunch of drunk pilots. Nice. I thought maybe we'd get into that when we talk about writing. Okay. But I mean, like, part of my job at the publishing company was dealing with songwriter schedules. Yeah. Um, Kind of, we all kind of had a hand in Craig and Rodney and Chris and Sarah, as did they, but um, Craig was one of the bigger ones, and then Chris Tompkins, I was kind of in charge of his, his schedule, mm-hmm. or did a lot with his schedule, I wouldn't say in charge, but I did a lot with his schedule, so that was always um, chasing a bunch of cats on fire. You probably had to call a few writers and explain why, why Chris may be five minutes late. Yeah. 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 I learned to let down a lot of people, too. And I did have to um, tell a lot of people that we do not take unsolicited material. Yeah. Which, word to the wise, if you are trying to make it as a songwriter, do not think you can just show up and go to a publishing company and be rude to the people at the front desk. If you want to be a songwriter or an artist, artist, (laughs) artist, be kind to people. Yeah. Make those people your friends. Because they're the gatekeepers. They are the gatekeepers. And I know, at least my experience with Craig and and Jeff Carlton and Pat Higdon, like, if people were rude to us and they heard about it... Oh, yeah. Yeah. That person's not going to get a chance. Right. You know, they put a lot of value in us at the front desk, manning the phones and the people who come in and out. And if people are unkind... And you're just not going to get in anywhere. Yeah. Don't do cutesy things like buy an expensive guitar and then write a bunch of lyrics on it. (laughs) Which we've seen. Which has happened. And, like, if you're a good writer, 
go the do the right things. Go to NSAI. Start meeting up with people. Go to songwriter nights. BMI. Ask Be nice to people. CSAC. Just they know all the writers. Right. Get the relationships going yeah. that way, and you can start co-writing with people at NSAI. You don't have to be a signed songwriter to co-write. Just start doing your craft, and eventually you're going to be that new group of songwriters that comes in. Yeah. You know? Um, but just do it the right way. Don't don't just assume that you're the, the newest thing that came to town and everybody, you know, can't wait to hear you because I, I hate to break it to you. There are thousands of people who get off the bus every day who think that, and the percentages are so low, and they're getting lower. Just be kind. Yeah, I think there's less professional, or there's less songwriters than there are professional football players. Yes, with actual publishing deals. Yes, and super important if you're emailing people. Number one, if you have their email, don't wear them out. Number yeah. two, say their name correctly in the email. Spell it right. Spell it right. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> That's the advice that I have. All right. Okay, there we go. We'll be back. Thank you. Thank you.